0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This is your typical radio ad while eating a crunch bar. This is Automatic of Autos used cars. This weekend only, we're having a whale. Bring the kids. See for yourself. It is huge gonna make a big splash no other dealer can say they have a whale like this
1: when things sound dull turn up the fun with crunch
0: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Tomorrow, Performers from across Europe will be coming together for an evening of sequin-spangled musical variety. Yes, it's the Eurovision Song Contest. And to mark the occasion, we thought we'd delve into the history of this unique continent-wide singing competition. To find out more about what Eurovision can tell us about the changing face of Europe over the last six decades, I spoke to historian Dr. Dean Volatich, author of Post-War Europe and the Eurovision Song Contest, and one of the world's leading academic experts on Eurovision. I thought that I'd start today's conversation with a quote from you, Dean, so sorry to quote yourself at you, but um, you've described Eurovision as Europe's biggest election, a platform from which the aspirations of dictators and drag queens have been projected, and upon which battles between capitalists and communists Europeanists and Eurosceptics, reactionaries and revolutionaries have been played out. That said, Eurovision's organisers have always maintained that it's not and it never has been a political event. What would you say to that?
1: I would say that there has always been politics behind Eurovision and in Eurovision. The organisers have to say that because they want to put out the fires before they begin. But Eurovision has always been about politics. In the end, it's a competition between states. So it has always reflected international relations in Europe, in the world, and that's why it's political.
0: So how did you end up writing a book about the history and the geopolitics of Eurovision what can what looks like a on the surface a glitzy singing competition what can that tell us about Europe's changing cultural and geopolitical landscape over the last 6 decades
1: well i studied watching Eurovision as a child uh, in Australia. We actually received the BBC's um, version of Eurovision with the commentary um, of Terry Wogan. So I became very very familiar with him. And as a child, I was very interested in where my parents came from. They come from Croatia. So for us, watching Eurovision was also a way to reconnect with our European background. So I was just amazed by this show that showed the rich cultural diversity of Europe. When I was an undergraduate at the Australian National University studying European history and politics, I began writing essays about Eurovision. So after my PhD, I uh, was a researcher at the European University Institute in Florence. And there I was surrounded by researchers from all over Europe who could tell me about their different national experiences uh, with regards to Eurovision. And it was there that I decided I need to do a research project on the history of Eurovision, because it's such an interesting subject and there had not been any serious historical research done on it. There was nothing serious talking about Eurovision and why it was created and uh, how it has reflected European politics and um, what the motivations of its organizers have been. And uh, since then, I've become the world's leading academic expert on the history of Eurovision, So
0: if me and you were to go back and watch all of the Eurovision song contests from the last 66 years, I mean, it would take a long time. I did it. (laughs) Okay. Well, I'm sure it did take you a long time and I'd like to hear about that. How would we see things changing over time and where would we see politics working its way in?
1: Well, I think you see politics from the very start, the very first edition of the contest, If I can give you an example of how political messages have been sent through Eurovision, I only need to say that the first West German entry was a German-Jewish singer, Walter Andreas Schwarz, who was a survivor of the Holocaust. So automatically this sends a message on the identity of the West German state. If you look back through all the contests, you can see waves of different cultural influences happening. For example, I would say in the 1950s, that's a very Italian decade. The first contest is actually hosted in Italian, in Lugano, in Switzerland. The contest itself is modelled on the San Remo uh, Italian Song Festival, which began in Italy in 1951. And um, we see the biggest ever non-English language hit from Eurovision, come out in uh, 1958 with Domenico Modugno singing uh, Volare. So after that, we see a French wave until about the late 1960s when we start seeing a British wave. And from 1967 to 1977, uh, British entries do very well in Eurovision, mostly uh, finishing uh, in the top three.
0: So I might take us back to that first Italian wave for the moment, and let's talk about the formation of Eurovision in 1956. So it seems like a typically idealistic post-war venture. What were some of the ideas behind the formation of Eurovision?
1: I think a lot of people mistake the establishment of Eurovision and its organiser, the European Broadcasting Union, as some sort of expression of Europeanism, a desire for European integration. But they weren't really that. They were attempts by officials from broadcasting organisations across Europe to promote cooperation among themselves and actually to produce uh, programmes which were commercially viable, which were uh, economically expedient, because this was a time in the 1950s when television technology, for example, was still nascent. And there was a lot of skepticism across Europe as to whether television would be such a success as to whether you know there should be so much money invested into it so this was a way to pull resources um not only in the development of uh, television technology but also in the production of programs that they could share and the Eurovision Song Contest was one of those
0: mm. and what was that first competition like what were some of the highlights
1: so the first competition was um, in 1956 in a uh, Lugano in Switzerland in a theatre, and this today seems quaint because today Eurovision is staged in the huge arena um, with thousands of public viewers. But then it was uh, in a theatre, uh, people were quite formally dressed in tuxedos, in evening gowns. The stage was rather small. The entries were varied. Um, We shouldn't think that just because people were in what we consider formal attire today, that uh, they were singing songs which were old-fashioned or not of the time. There was a song, for example, by the Austrian Freddie Quinn, who represented West Germany, which was in an early rock and roll style. The contest was won by a Swiss singer, Liz Assier, who sang a chanson in French called Refrain, and it also had a voting scandal. Voting was done live then. Um, The Luxembourgish jury uh, didn't make it to the contest, so the Swiss jury voted in its place, and lo and behold the Swiss entry won. So already from the start, there was politics, there was scandal and um, Eurovision was ready to go.
0: Well, if we're talking about voting scandals, I think we need to address one of the things that's always raised about Eurovision, which is people always say, you know, countries just vote for their political and cultural allies. Looking back through history, do you think that that's a fair statement?
1: It definitely is, and scientific studies have shown that that there have been cultural voting blocks in Eurovision, but they're more cultural than political. So they've been more based on common languages, common uh, popular music industries. For example, we've seen voting blocks in the Francophone part of Europe. We've seen them uh, in the Balkans, uh, in the former Soviet Union, between Britain and Ireland and among the uh, nordic countries as well greece and cyprus are a constant but they haven't always been so we have certainly seen these um cultural voting blocks in eurovision when it comes to politics that's a different story because if we had political voting blocks as well then we wouldn't see as many votes being shared between countries like uh, croatia and serbia or uh, even Ukraine and Russia. So we have to be very careful when we talk about these voting blocs and to not imply that uh, they've always been political. If we look at Greece and Cyprus, for example, very interestingly, in the uh, early 1980s, when Cyprus debuted in Eurovision, Greece had already debuted in the mid-1970s, Cyprus didn't give Greece any points. And the Greeks seemed to be rather annoyed at this. And then when Cyprus participated the next time, Greece gave Cyprus no points. But then perhaps there was some discussion between the two broadcasting organizations, their officials, that, hey, there are voting blocks in this contest and we should be voting for each other because we both speak Greek. So that could have happened because after that, certainly uh, Greece and Cyprus have been one uh, constant voting block. So, yes, there have been the voting blocks. Really, the first annoyance with voting blocks was expressed in the early 1960s when uh, the Scandinavian countries started to criticize the recurrent wins by French language entries. And in 1963, actually, uh, Norway had to give uh, its voting results twice. The first time there had apparently been a technical error, so the Norwegian jury um, gave them again and actually changed its top points to go to Denmark so that Denmark won over a French-language entry by Switzerland. And this change could have been because the uh, Norwegians and their Scandinavian allies were rather annoyed that uh, French-language entries had dominated the wins since 1956. So in 1963, they ensured a win for the Danish entry, the first ever uh, Scandinavian-language win. So complaints about the voting blocks have also been there since the early years of the contest.
0: If we're talking about cultural allegiances, something I did want to ask you about was um, Eurovision during the Cold War. To what extent was Eurovision a battleground for the culture war between East and West in the Cold War?
1: It wasn't really a battleground. It was more a site of cooperation. So, with the death of Soviet leader Stalin in 1953 and the coming to power of Nikita Khrushchev thereafter, relations between the Eastern and Western blocs in the Cold War improve, and there is more cooperation between them. And this is also reflected in television broadcasting. So from the late 1950s, the European Broadcasting Union, which is the Western European organization that brings together television stations from Europe, begins to cooperate more with its Eastern European equivalent. And they also agree to exchange programs, so much so that from 1965, Eurovision can also be viewed in Eastern Europe. There was even a um, suggestion from Czechoslovak Television in uh, the mid-1950s that the two organisations should together produce a joint song contest, but this was rejected by the European Broadcasting Union, which instead suggested that its Eastern European counterpart go ahead and produce its own show, which it did, and that was called the Intervision Song contest. And in 1968, Intervision was actually very significant because that year it was the first uh, pan European song contest. It was staged in the context of the Prague Spring in Czechoslovakia, which saw the Czechoslovak media liberalized, unlike any other national media in Eastern Europe. And it was open to Western influences. So in 1968, Czechoslovak television invited also uh, West. Western European participants uh, to participate in in Intervision. So that year we saw the first ever Pan-European Song Contest being staged in uh, Karlovy Vary.
0: And what was Intervision like? Was it fairly similar to Eurovision?
1: It was fairly similar to Eurovision. It was even based on the rules of Eurovision. What was different though was first of all openness to participants from countries outside of Eastern Europe there was this idea that Intervision in the late 1970s should also be more global, not just pan-European, but even global. So we had even American singers participate, such as uh, Gloria Gaynor, who sang as an interval act. So in some ways, Intervision uh, was modelled on Eurovision, but in other ways, it also had its own innovations. Uh, I could add in the late 1970s that there were two InterVision Song Contest one based on entries from national broadcasting organisations, as Eurovision was, another based on entries submitted by record companies. And this second contest was a very commercial one, and in a way it managed to resolve a conflict that was happening in Eurovision, where there are many countries which criticised the role that Western record companies were playing, especially British and West German ones, in influencing the contest. They claimed that, you know, these big record companies were somehow trying to influence the results of the contest and that that went against the non-commercial public service mission of the national broadcasting members that were then uh, represented uh, in Eurovision or were organising Eurovision. So they actually wanted uh, the commercialism of Eurovision to be controlled, whereas in Intervision they seemed to embrace commercialism by having a second contest for record companies, which is something that, you know, we wouldn't necessarily associate with the communist organisers of Intervision, right? We would tend to see Eurovision as the commercial event and Intervision as somehow the communist controlled event, but it was actually the opposite.
0: That debate around um, commercialization is really interesting because do you think that Eurovision has always been in step with popular musical tastes across Europe um, over the decades?
1: Eurovision has always been criticised for three th- things. The first one is the voting blocks, which we've already discussed. The second is the high cost of staging the contest. And the third is the quality of its music. So we've seen these criticisms always being made about uh, Eurovision, by media commentators, by public viewers, even by the organisers of the contest itself. And I would say that there certainly was this feeling in the European Broadcasting Union that the contest wasn't reflecting modern trends in popular music in the 1960s already, and surveys were showing that young viewers especially weren't so interested in watching the contest. So in the early 1970s, we see a change to the rules, which begin to allow more people on stage so that we see bands on stage. They allow for newer instruments, electronic instruments, to accompany uh, singers. So not only this orchestra, which was rather restrictive in terms of the styles of music that you could play, the rules really make an effort to attract young people more. They also start to include young people more in the national juries that are giving out their votes. So in the 1970s, we really see the song contest changing in this regard and trying to keep up more with modern trends and even starting to set more of these uh, trends. So in 1974, we see ABBA, Win Eurovision uh with the song Waterloo and uh this launches ABBA's uh international career and in a way launches also Eurovision as a major force on the international popular music stage although as I did point out uh, Domenico Modugno's Volare was already uh, a harbinger of that in 1958. <laughs>
0: To come on the History Extra podcast.
1: It wasn't rated so highly by the bookies, but it was one of the few songs that really touched me and brought me to tears. And, you know, that usually doesn't happen. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match
0: I wonder if now we could turn to a few of the key moments in Eurovision history. So since 2000, uh, political statements have been officially banned by Eurovision, but people have managed to get political messages and political protests in there over time, haven't they? What have been some of the most interesting instances of that?
1: political messages have been banned implicitly since uh, 2000. There is this rule where you're not allowed to bring the contest into disrepute. And more explicitly since uh, 2005, when uh, the Ukrainian entry was actually a protest song that had been used in the Orange uh, Revolution. So the Ukrainian song from 2005, is an example of that. There's the example of the Israeli song Push the Button, which was basically criticizing the Iranian nuclear threat to Israel, but was not banned, even though it was considered by many to be political. In 2009, there was a Georgian entry, we don't want to put in, which was read as criticism of Russian uh, leader Vladimir Putin and uh, was banned from the contest that came just after the Russian army invaded uh, Georgia and there was a war between the two states. So the list is actually uh, endless. If we go back to the mid-1970s, there was an entry by Greece in uh, 1976 which protested against the Turkish invasion of Cyprus. And Turkish television actually sent a letter to the European Broadcasting Union and said, look, you know, this song is political, it's anti-Turkish, and we want it removed from the contest, but the European Broadcasting Union wrote back and said, look, we have no rules against politics, so there can be political messages in Eurovision. But of course, you know, things have changed uh, a lot since then. And I would say that the big issue isn't the fact that there are more entries or more political um conflicts that can be waged uh, through Eurovision, but rather that the contest has become more commercial. So in the late 1990s, Eurovision started to become a more commercial event, partly because uh, public service broadcasters across Europe themselves were allowed to become more commercial. And really having the rule against politics there is about not scaring away potential sponsors, potential advertisers. That's what it's all about. So this is why we see in Eurovision some politics is allowed and some politics isn't. When in 2016 the Ukrainian singer Jamala won the contest with the song 1944, which was about the expulsion of Crimean Tatars from Crimea during the Second World War, but which many read as alluding to the Russian occupation of Crimea in 2014. There were calls beforehand for the song to be banned because it was political, but, you know, when it was read by... The organizers of the contest, you know, they said there's nothing anti-Russian or political in this. It's about historical um, event and the a historical injustice against a certain ethnic group. So it couldn't be banned, and I agree that couldn't have been banned. But it had a huge political weight.
0: So you've got to be you've got to be subtle in how you get your messages across. Of
1: course, of course, and it attracted uh, so many votes because. It was in essence a protest song and it really um, had meaning across Europe. So in this regard, you know, you can always have a political entry uh, if you want. If you wanted to win, though, it has to capture the zeitgeist of the moment and really chime with a pan-European audience. And, you know, political entries don't always manage to do this. In 1993, the entries from Bosnia and Herzegovina and Croatia were both political. They referred to the wars that were happening in those countries, but they didn't manage to win, even though there were... There was a lot of sympathy across Europe for both Bosnia and Herzegovina and Croatia uh, during their wars. So, you know, how successful a political song can be also depends on a lot of other different factors.
0: And how do you think Eurovision has exposed divisions in Europe over other social um, and cultural issues? I'm thinking, for example, of the drag queen Conchita Verst, who won the competition in 2014.
1: I was in the midst of my project in 2014 when Conchita won Eurovision for Austria and Conchita was a drag queen with a beard. So she caused a lot of controversy um, around Europe um, because she was challenging gender norms. Um, She was speaking out uh, about LGBTQ issues. And um, this was, of course something that was not um, supported by a lot of different political elements across Europe. And in the media, it was very often presented as a battle between um, East and West Europe. So this um, anti-LGBTIQ or homophobic East against, you know, the progressive uh, gay-friendly West. But that was just too simplistic and I think uh, rather uh, prejudiced, um, and ignorant about the history of, um, sexual minorities, uh, in Central and East Europe, because, uh, when it came to the voting, Contita actually received a lot of votes from, um, Central and East Europe. She came fifth in the Russian public's vote. Um, and, even though she was later criticized by some conservative politicians you know even in russia she had her fans so i would say it was more a battle it reflected more a battle between um conservatives and liberals in Europe, which we see in all European countries. Even in Austria, you know, the country which Conchita represented, the far-right Freedom Party, was very critical of her, whereas she was embraced by the Greens and the Social Democrats. So she was reflecting cultural battles that were taking place between uh, different ideological currents on a pan-European level, but also on national European uh, levels. And I think that uh, Eurovision has managed to do this um, a lot throughout its history, even though we're often not familiar with these battles that have taken place because they've taken place at a national level and they've often been played out in the national selections for the Eurovision entries um, that, you know, we haven't always gotten to see.
0: We've heard that in the 2022 competition, Russia will not be involved. What has, who's been involved in Eurovision and perhaps more notably, who hasn't been told us about Europe over the decades?
1: Wow, that's a big question. So basically, at the start, in the 1950s and 1960s, it was all about whether you had television services, whether they were established and developed enough to join the terrestrial uh, Eurovision network. Then, I would say, later on, it became more political, let's say, in the 1970s, when Mediterranean states started to enter, especially uh Greece and Turkey, and Israel also in 1973. That's when uh, politics became more involved. First of all, Israel making statements in its songs about uh, peace with its neighbours, um, Greece and Turkey uh, entering and then boycotting the contest because Uh, because of issues related to the Turkish invasion of Cyprus. That's when the contest uh, becomes more political and we see the first real uh, political boycotts of the event. Then from the 1990s, it um, becomes about Central and East European states entering the contest after the end of the Cold War. So they also become members of the European Broadcasting Union and then are allowed to... Enter the contest. And then from the late 1980s, we see the first big country really pull out of Eurovision for a long time, and that is Italy. And this is something, you know, we're not quite clear as to why this happened. One of the reasons certainly could have been that Eurovision didn't have a big public following in Italy in the 1990s. So even though Italy, you know, was the inventor of Eurovision and gave it its first biggest hit. In the 1990s, the Italians really weren't um, into uh, Eurovision that much. Maybe also they felt that somehow the contest had been taken over by Central and East European states. And then from, I would say, the late 2000s, with the financial crisis, we see countries not participating because of the economic costs of participation. So these are especially countries from Southern Europe that are especially affected by the economic crisis. So Cyprus, Portugal, Bulgaria, Croatia. So you really do see, you know, different waves of participation in the contest affected by different technological, political and economic issues.
0: Well, it's fair to say that Italy is very much back in the Eurovision fold because, of of course, last year we had a victory from Manuskin, the, the Italian in- entry, and this year's competition is in Turin. What do you see as the role that Eurovision plays in Europe today?
1: I think that the role of Eurovision in Europe today, the important role of Eurovision is what it has always been, to bring Europeans together, to have them watch the same show at the same time, share a common experience with millions of other Europeans to vote in what I do call Europe's biggest election, together and to together decide what their favourite song of the night is. I think that is the beauty of Eurovision. I think that is the power of Eurovision. Sometimes they will be inspired to vote politically. You know, this year it looks like there will be a big sympathy vote for the Ukrainian entry. Sometimes they'll be inspired to vote because of the quality of a certain song. You know, this is a traditional pan-European event, unlike any other, and this is the power of the contest. What I think that Eurovision will reflect this year, though, um, are a few cultural and political changes. The political change, the biggest one being the war in Ukraine. So the fact that Russia is not there is certainly a big move on the part of the European Broadcasting Union. Uh, The fact that 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 decision was taken only uh, within days of Russia's invasion of Ukraine is a very significant decision because in the past, the European Broadcasting Union has taken its time to make um such political decisions for example last year when it came to Belarus you know there was a whole process of consultation that it followed but to to exclude Belarus from the competition but this year the decision was taken quite quickly after members of the European Broadcasting Union um especially from northern and uh, eastern Europe said look if Russia is there we won't be So this is why the European Broadcasting Union had to respond quickly. And I would say that this really does uh, set a precedent for the organisation. There will no doubt be a lot of support for the Ukrainian entry. Whether that will be enough to get uh, the Ukrainian entry to win is questionable, because like I said before, there have been a lot of other entries that have come from countries that have been at war, and they haven't won. So, um, you know, voters might think, well, everyone's going to vote for Ukraine anyway, so I'll vote for someone else for another entry. That might happen too. We'll have to see. Um, what I think that the entries uh, this year reflect and what Maneskin's entry last year reflected was a turn towards more songs in national languages. Maneskin showed that a song doesn't have to be in English to win. And um, this is something that Eurovision has really been fighting with ever since the rules were changed in 1999, that the songs did not have to be in their national languages. Since then, we've seen uh, most entries and most winners being in English, which I think is not good for the contest. You know, the contest likes to uh, promote itself as a promoter of cultural and social diversity in Europe, but when it comes to linguistic diversity, it has since then done a very poor job. So I'm hoping that this will mean that we'll see more winners um, in languages uh, that are not English. I also have to point out, I always get the question from British journalists regarding why has the United Kingdom done so poorly in Eurovision in recent decades? Well the change came in 1999. You know, there was a wave of British successes from 1988 to um, 1998, including a win in 1997, Katrina and the Waves, Love Shine a Light. But after 1998, everything went downhill for the United Kingdom. So it wasn't because there were more Central and East European entries supposedly voting for each other. No, it was because the rules for uh, the languages of the songs were changed and more entries came to be performed in English, which had always been one of, you know, the advantages that British entries had, like Irish entries, which won four times in uh, the 1990s. But since then, we haven't seen an Irish win. So really, I think it's because of the language change. And I think that actually, if there is more linguistic diversity in Eurovision, we might also be likely to see an English language entry from the United Kingdom win because um, it will stand out more among all of the entries, uh, all of the other entries in national languages. And I have to say that the British entry this year is very strong and I predict that it will do um, very well, Um, the Spaceman. So I hope that I don't get those questions as much anymore. So
0: maybe this year we won't get nil Nilpois, let's hope.
1: no. Because Europeans do not uh, uh, dislike the United Kingdom. You know, they love British popular music. It's been a trendsetter across Europe, across the world in the post-war period. So it's not about loving or hating. It's just about having a great song that will capture the attention of Europeans. And I think that The Spaceman does that.
0: I have one final question for you, um, which is what is your own personal favourite moment from Eurovision history.
1: For me, it's hard to say which moments of Eurovision are more meaningful than others, because I wrote a whole book on the contest of (laughs) historical moments, how every contest was somehow um, a significant historical moment. And I've been to so many of the contests, you know, where I felt the tension among the audience when it has come, let's say, to the Russian and Ukrainian entries vying for a win in the final or um, seeing uh, Conchita uh, perform and just feeling the support that she had from the audience. But I'm going to give you a more personal favourite moment, and that was in 2018, and it was the German entry, Michael Schulter, who sang this ballad, You Let Me Walk Alone, and it was about him losing his father. And it wasn't rated so highly by the bookies, but it was one of the few songs that really touched me and brought me to tears. And, you know, that usually doesn't happen when I'm at Eurovision because I'm analysing the politics and looking for the messages. And, you know, we talked about Germany at the start of the broadcast, about how Eurovision has been so important for fashioning its identity after the Second World War, for example, with its first entrant being uh, Jewish. And I thought, you know, this is such a touching song. And it also tells us about how European views of Germany have changed in the time that Eurovision has taken place. And this year, I would hope, though, that um, people vote for a more lively song, a more happy song, because I think we actually need more of this. We need more happiness. We need more joy right now in Europe.
0: That was Dr. Dean Vuletic. Dean's book, Post-War Europe and the Eurovision Song Contest, is available now from Bloomsbury. And if you're interested in watching the Eurovision Song Contest, that will be shown on the BBC tomorrow evening, Saturday the 14th of May. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.